Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hi, I'm Jackie Broad. I'm an ARC Future Fellow at Monash University, Melbourne, and I'm listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Hawthorne, Tatman, Jenkins, Hutchinson, Hirsi Ali and Plumwood. Let's get radical about philosophy. Morning everyone, my name is uh, Anke Schnook and I... uh I really like to listen to Radical Philosophy on 3CR, Community Radio, and your AM dial. And welcome to the program. And thanks very much to Tony and dear old Daz from Come On, Come In. Um, You can listen to that before my program. Great music. And uh, today we have got an interview with Dr. Janice Richardson about the philosophy of feminism. And I'm speaking to Dr. Janice Richardson about feminism and privacy. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Now, what was it that inspired your interest in feminism in philosophy? Well, I think it's gone back a long time. And part of it, in terms of the philosophy itself, I just hit really lucky. I'd always been concerned with feminism and always in some way interested in philosophy and I litigated for about six years for trade unions but then I went back to university and hit lucky with a master's program, a conversion in philosophy whilst I was still working full time. So it shows when students do part-time courses, I really understand, you know, when they're working at the, the same time, I understand what that's like. And as I say, I hit lucky because in this philosophy master's course, there were visiting professors, two of whom were feminist philosophers, Drusella Cornell, who's a really noted US legal theorist, and Adriana Cavarero, again, a real international superstar from Italy. I was also very lucky because on the same course as well, there was who I think another superstar, uh, Christine Battersby. And I was so interested in this because I think it's, it, feminism gives you insight into other areas. Feminist philosophy is important for itself because you, you always have some theory, even if you think you're extremely practical. There's a, a Keynesian argument about this, you know, that these, talking about economics, he says these men who think that uh, they're just practical men and say that it's uh, uh, theories ridiculous, they're just using yesterday's theorists in, in, he's talking about economics. But I think Theory is important as well as practice, and they're interrelated in quite complex ways that need to be theorised. And both, of course, are concerned with, in, in feminist philosophy, concerned with thinking about subordination and have insights about subordination. If I could just come back to these influences, mm. 
Christine Battersby, I thought, was fascinating. And I can give her a small summary of some of her work. Obviously, I'll go on to, to my work, and uh, that is different. But uh, just to give you some example of what I thought was so interesting and influenced me very early on when I started... She works in aesthetics. Of course, I'm in a law faculty and I'm interested in political theory and law. But Christine Battersby works in the philosophy of aesthetics and particularly Kant's third critique. And yet something that, that looks like, you know, really central philosophy, she, she reworks in a way that I think is really important. So just to, if you bear with me, there is a safety net, but let me give you a very brief sort of summary of this. It's a bit like the reduced Shakespeare company, <laughs> you know, but I'll, I'll, I think it is worth doing. So in the third critique, Kant explains the dynamic sublime. And what happens, there's a sort of two-stage process, he says, to our appreciation of sublime in art. And he said initially with the dynamic sublime, we feel potentially overwhelmed by the might of nature. It's depiction of storms, the might of the sea. It's not nature being pretty and for us that gets linked in with femaleness, but, but actually the might of nature that can overpower us. And so there's an ambiguity about the experience of the sublime, that it's not all sort of positive that at this early stage it's actually something threatening to us but then it's we recover this tension that we feel by actually recouping it through the use of reason for example if we imagined ourselves in a shipwreck or something like that the might of the ocean there's still that idea in Kant that reason is linked with morality and we'd be able to stand up to the might of nature by being persons, by being reasonable, and that reason being linked with our ability to be moral. Now, he's problematic in his position with women, and one of the points that Christian Battersby makes is that he sets up a tension between this self that is able to stand up to the might of nature, that does so by splitting in some ways itself from from nature to stand up to it as a sort of split between that self and its outside. And she's interested in what philosophy would have been like if women had not been treated as subordinate. And particularly it's sort of it's not the notion of the feminine, because you can have the male genius that's feminine, she points out. But it's about female bodies and how they're situated historically within sort of networks of power, how how they're understood. And female artists were actually uh, told that really they shouldn't be involved in the sublime. There's something masculine about standing up. Courage, Kant says, is a masculine virtue. But she looks at some of these artists, women artists, who rework the sublime and talks about, and it's her, her position as well, so she uses it to bring out a certain position, whereby she's thinking about relationality and a conception of self in which self and other emerge 
rather than being split off. The, the concept of self or identity as being something that's split from outside or otherness. Instead, she's thinking about artistic works and uh, and also in philosophy, a conception of self, really, in which self and other emerge through patterns of relationality. And I particularly, I've gone in a different direction using Spinoza more than anybody else. But what I think I draw from that that I thought was important is that you don't have some concept of self that has an underlying fixed essence. And essentialism became a really major point of discussion in feminist theory. But in these Buttersby's theory and in my use of Spinoza and in Spinoza himself in the ethics, you don't have a sense that there is an underlying fixed essence to human beings. And that that was always a problem because when you look at philosophy, often it's the case, um, historically contingent case, that it's written by men. And women either don't appear or appear ambiguously and they're they're seen as the least best instantiation of the species often. So there's something interesting and I think productive about thinking this idea about essence. But I think there's something productive about thinking essence in a way that doesn't have some underlying fixity. I can go on to my example with Spinoza. Okay, just briefly then to talk, and I can come back to this, about why Christine's influence in that idea about thinking essence differently that isn't something fixed and underlying, why I find Spinoza useful in that. Buttersby gets there by a reworking of Kant. I find Spinoza useful, but in some ways it's a it's a similar move because for Spinoza, thinking about Spinoza's ethics, which is the, the part I'm most interested in, he has a definition of essence as our carnatus, our endeavour. And basically, it's about what we, and it's not just human beings either, it's about ev- everything that exists. What we do is try to persist and thrive. And the way that we do that is actually our essence. And what I take from that, to put that a bit more (laughs) straightforwardly, is that when we know things, when we understand things, it changes who we are so that we are able to live more enriched and better lives. And that's what he envisages in terms of sort of culture. So it's not like I learn a load of facts and I hold them in my head like books in a library. It changes how I act and uh, what I'm able to do. And that allows me to bootstrap myself up. Actually, whilst I'm on this, if I can keep going, because I do think this is interesting. And whilst he was absolutely no feminist, I do think there's some really interesting feminist work on this. And... Basically, the way he thinks about it from the ethics, to really simplify, is that we have different sort of stages of knowledge that 
for most of the time, it sounds pretty inauspicious, but we, firstly, when we encounter something to make it really straightforward, we either encounter other ideas, other minds, including ideas about women that may you know, diminish us in certain ways, but potentially only temporarily. And we may, say, encounter a crocodile with our bodies. If we, when that occurs, the initial knowledge is purely inadequate, that we have an image of this thing in our imaginations that is, that it's bad, that it's evil, because it's made us sad, it's diminished us by you know, eating our leg or something. Similarly, things that are good for us, we feel joy, and we register that they're increasing our powers of acting on understanding by registering that joy and having an image of them as being good. So that's the first stage in adequate knowledge. What we need to do is get past the superstition of just labelling things as good or evil and try and work out what it is about them that agrees with us. That makes us active rather than passive. That's adequate knowledge. And that's the point that kind of can allow us to bootstrap ourselves. So when it comes to being part of culture, he's really interesting at the point when he's writing in the 17th century, because you get the liberals, you get Hobbes and Locke, who start with individuals and start with the idea that the individual is responsible for his or her actions. They're normally talking about his. But with Spinoza, we're always parts of parts of things. And what's important to us is to be able to be part of groups. And, you know, you can go to sort of higher up as well. But particularly what's useful to us are people who are interested in gaining that sort of adequate knowledge in order to live better lives. Now, he was no feminist, but I think there's some really interesting work coming from sort of artists and then Deleuze, Moira Gayton's work, Genevieve Lloyd, that is thinking about... Firstly, this way that essence isn't some fixed essence, as I was talking about, but also the way that this is a way of thinking about ideology differently from Marxist, well, from some of the ways Marxist ideology has been taken up. It might not be attributable to Marx specifically. So because because for Spinoza you have mind and body that are both just expressions of me, not all minds and bodies, of course, that would be a moment of uh, madness, but, you know, my mind in this is just an expression of me and another expression of me is my body. So you don't have that split between mind and body that you get with Descartes. And part of that is that it's that ideas that, that increase our, our ability to thrive increase all of that, you know, increase my ability to thrive. But you can also link it, ideas that undermine us, ideas perhaps about subordination of, of women or others, that if to the extent that they affect us and how could they not, they you know, part of who we are, that these ideas can diminish us, but they're not purely ideas. There's also bodily expressions of this. In Marxist terms, you think about 
the sort of ideology, but also the bodily expression of the, to use Foucault, the disciplined body and how that operates. And I think there's something really useful and original, very original in the way that feminists have taken that up. And I'm thinking, for example, Moira's work in that regard, um, Genevieve Lloyd, that you can use that to think about how subordination gets perpetuated in certain ways. There's lots of other ways. And I'm interested in thinking the mechanics of this, and that's my sort of latest work, really. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. And I'm speaking to Dr Janice Richardson about philosophy and privacy and feminism. Uh, Moira Graytons is interested in aesthetics and thinking about... But the project is using Spinoza to think about... Perhaps it's not aesthetics per se, but thinking about how how you can think the imagination differently, I think, and its role in trying to increase the richness of our lives in, in certain ways, moving towards adequate knowledge. I'm a much safer ground on this if, if I, not some mad egotism, but I just know I'm on safer ground if I talk about my own take. Otherwise, I'll get it completely wrong because I'm not actually talking about aesthetics. So apologies if this is egotistic. It's just sort of uh, <laughs> a slight anxiety of getting speaking for others. But her work is great, and I would go off and read it. Let me give it that sort of plug and listen to her. It's great. What I was interested in doing with um, Spinoza In terms of my use of Spinoza, my last book was Law and the Philosophy of Privacy. And I'm interested in Spinoza in that regard because I think he says something interesting about, uh, well, you can see by the way I've described what he thinks our essence is. It's what we do to try to survive and thrive. And for us, it's to try to understand the encounters that we have with the world, whether they're physical or whether they're with others' ideas. It's about trying to understand how they relate to us and, you know, our bo- how something, for example, a crocodile is bad for our bodies. And once we stop labelling it as evil, which he saw as a basis of sort of superstition, and start to understand it, to have adequate knowledge... It allows us to enrich our lives. Now, that recap was because what is really important to us in being able to do that is each other, getting together, forming, if you like, singular things as we think together, just as we would pull on a rope together. So it's a different position from sort of the the liberal individualism that you get in the 17th century. And... What becomes so central is that we can really help each other. If we're not paralysed by fear and, and the passions, we can really help each other in terms of understanding the world, in terms of thinking and acting together. And that doesn't mean submerging the individual and all those liberal fears, but it's about a sort of way of making, I think, in this framework, communication really central. 
So at the time in the 17th century, he's arguing for free speech and the importance of people not being stopped by, from talking through blasphemy laws or anything like that, to use that example, and being able to, you know, publish because obviously he had problems with the, uh, uh, with the church. And, but he also gives you, I think, he doesn't do it himself, but I draw out of this arguments as to what becomes problematic with regard to privacy. And that's when you get, for example, humiliation of women or other groups in public when they seek to talk in public. And you think about uh, this online. So if there's something that blocks communication in that sort of way, then or in other sort of ways, you know, the way copyright law works or something like that. In a sense, you could group, they're an odd group set to bring together, but you can see how they they can operate so as to stop some people from either communicating or having what they communicate really understood or valued. There's an interesting feminist theory work from... Marilyn Fricker, who says that she talks about what she calls epistemological injustice, epistemology being about what we can know. And the injustice part is when, as a result of gender or race or anything like that, um, any group of people are not valued in terms of what they say. They're not given credibility. So, for example, in court, women have not had the same credibility as men. But... It can track you throughout life in everyday conversations. And if that's the case, that's going to undermine communication. It's it, it's one of the sort of mechanisms, and I've just been writing about sort of, if you like, specific mechanisms of power that are maybe quite small. I suppose you think of Foucault when you say that, but I'm thinking of these these self-reinforcing situations because if a woman doesn't actually get treated with respect as to her opinions and what she says in her daily life, whether at work or not, Then, and it's not just women, of course, but we'll think of women, then it may be she starts to, she may be, have other resources to be able to stand up to it, especially perhaps today, but she may well start to feel undermined that her own self-confidence will be undermined. And so she will come across as less confident. And that's a problem because that shows a way in which something can be reinforced. Now, what's good with Spinoza is that that would be viewed as a sad encounter that diminishes her. But it's not that it's fixed, that all the time we're encountering things that increase or decrease our powers of acting or powers of thought. And there is a way out in terms of a greater understanding as to how that occurs. And I think feminist philosophy, to come back to that point, is actually part of that. So what is the situation with feminists in philosophy at the moment? I think there's a great deal of really interesting feminist philosophy going on and has been really since, uh, well, you think about uh, well, actually that's, 
that's wrong. I mean, there's always been women fighting against subordination and there's always been sort of feminist philosophy, but I certainly think it's thriving at the moment. What's interesting, though, and I'm not a sociologist, but just uh, from experience, I can't back it up empirically apart from this anecdotally, that there seem to be fewer women in philosophy philosophy departments themselves. I'm, I mean, my doctorate's in philosophy, but I stayed in a law faculty. And I have to say I've found Monash Law Faculty a great place to be because lawyers don't tend, whereas analytic philosophers perhaps or other philosophers might really be upset by the notion of feminist philosophy and think, oh, you should go off to sociology because you're not talking about grand universal truths. Whereas I've found Monash uh, Monash. And I don't know about their philosophy, I'm not being rude to them, but I find Monash Law um, has been a, a good place to be because I've managed to keep my course going on theoretical issues on law, gender, feminism. And my students have been great. I've got interesting, you know, doctorate students as well as that's an undergraduate course. I think in some ways, I mean, the lawyers are, are great. And part of that is, I think, firstly, they're open, you know, they, they don't have, as I heard this wonderful Australian expression the other day, skin in the game, in a sense. Oh, uh, but also they're pragmatic. If you have the right publications, they're not going to get sniffy about, uh, you know, what it is you, you're doing, whereas perhaps it differs in philosophy. But that's, that's a bit of a guess, but I'm kind of happy in my faculty. <laughs> Thanks very much for being on the show today. You're, oh well, thank you very much for having me. I was really delighted to be uh, to be invited, and that you're doing this series. It's great. And I've been speaking to Dr. Janice Richardson about philosophy and feminism. Well, hope you've enjoyed the program today. I've certainly enjoyed your company, and tune in again next week, same place, same time. And also stay tuned for Are You Looking at Me? You're listening to Radical Philosophy on 3CR Community Radio, 8.55 on your AM dial. And I'm Lucy Main, a master's student at Monash University.